Um, turn, please, with me in your Bibles. There are Bibles in the back if you don't have one. Uh, we are uh, in our series, continue our series through this Old Testament prophetic book that we're calling the Gospel according to Isaiah. Uh, over and over again, God, uh, through the prophet Isaiah, has given us this beautiful picture and portrait of the Gospel. And the Gospel is Jesus Christ. That is who the Gospel is. And as we look at chapter 41 this morning, uh, let me remind you that chapter, um, when in your Bibles, when you turn the page from chapter 39 to chapter 40, there's a major transition. We've been through chapters 1 through 39, which is the major section, uh, the first major section in this book. But there's a major transition from chapters 39 to chapters 40. It moves from this chastisement, this discipline of the Lord to the comfort and salvation of God. There's also a major transition in time. In chapters 1 through 39 that we've already been through, Isaiah is speaking and prophesying to God's people in the 8th century B.C. He's been warning his people to repent of their covenant-breaking sins, sins of pride, fear of man, abusive leadership, idolatry, and among many other things, their failure to trust God as they entered into this ungodly and unnecessary alliances with foreign nations. They weren't trusting God. They were fearing man. And God, you know, raised up the Assyrian army to discipline his people. In 721 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was decimated. And then in 701 B.C., the southern kingdom, Judah, was infiltrated by the Assyrian army, but was spared by God. We saw that in Isaiah chapter 37. But in chapters 40 through chapters 55, Isaiah is speaking to God's people in the 6th century, not the 8th, the 6th century. God has revealed to Isaiah, the son of Amos, the future events, including the destruction of Jerusalem, where he's prophesying, the destruction of Jerusalem uh, by the Babylonian Empire. Isaiah has already hinted to this way back in chapter 14. And then at the end of chapter 39, if you have your Bibles, you could turn there for a minute. Isaiah makes it more clear, God makes it more clear that God's people will go into exile the, to, to the foreign nation of Babylon. It's going to happen. And although the king at the time of Judah, at the end of chapter 39, is Hezekiah, he was happy to hear that he and his family would be just fine. Didn't really care about his future uh, people or his ancestry. Uh, was just happy that he was okay. But God said, listen, you're going to go into exile. Chapter 39, verse 5 says this. Hear the word, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts, 39, verse 5, verse 6. Behold, Isaiah is telling Hezekiah, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, King Hezekiah, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, everything in Jerusalem, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Sixth century, excuse me, eighth century. Doesn't happen to the sixth century. And so that you know, just so that we're on on the same page, Babylon does invade Judah. The prophecy does come true. 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon deports the royal family, takes all the utensils from Jerusalem back to Babylon, 605. 597, he goes back into Jerusalem, in Judah, takes 7,000 mighty men of war, 1,000 craftsmen, according to 2 Kings, and then again in 586, 587, the Babylonians then conquer Jerusalem completely and burn it, the city and the temple to the ground. 
Just what Isaiah said. The people have been deported at that point into foreign lands and particularly in Babylon. The prophet Isaiah speaks about it in his prophecy that this will take place and they will settle in for 70 years. And then we know, according to history, 539 B.C., the Persian army under King Cyrus conquers Babylon and they become the world power. And that, if you know your Old Testament, takes us to Ezra and Nehemiah where Ezra and Nehemiah are called back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the wall. It says in Ezra 1 that the Lord stirred the heart of the spirit, stirred up the spirit, excuse me, of Cyrus, king of Persia, to release God's people to go back to Judah. I say all this because although that happened in the 6th century, Isaiah is given that information in the 8th century by God himself. We talked about that last week. So when we get into chapter 40, we see that Isaiah, is very important you see this, is speaking and prophesying to two audiences. The audiences that's in Jerusalem in the 8th century, the ones who have not yet been exiled. But the message wasn't just for them. As the scroll is being written, it is also a message to the exiled people 150 years or so later in the 6th century. And say, well, why is that important to mention? Well, let me ask you this question. Why the book of Revelation? Why the book of Revelation? Why did God give us the book of Revelation? So that wingnuts and whack jobs can tell you what day the Lord's going to come back. It's in Revelation. No. If you hear that, run. It's for worship. It's for trust. It's to, it's to have faith in God. The book of Revelation was given to us to worship Jesus and for the glory of our God. And that tells us that we ought to be the most hopeful people in all the world because we know how the story ends. What you believe, what I believe, what you understand and hope for in the future will directly affect your behavior and your hope and your joy today. The people of God are going into exile, but they have the promise of God that there is a sure hope of that coming to an end. Very important. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about how the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees our resurrection. In fact, he says it will bring us into his eternal glorious presence. And then he says, so don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Family, what you believe and hope for in the future directly affects the behavior, the hope, and the joy you have today. That's what God is telling his people. Last week, God spoke words of comfort to the exiled people. He promised them in chapter 40 that their sins would be forgiven, that he would reveal his glory to all flesh. He revealed his incomparable greatness and sovereignty over all the nations, that there's no one like him. And in the end, he said in chapter, th- at chapter 40, those who wait upon the Lord, those who wait, which means to trust, it's active, to be dependent upon the Lord, He will what? He will renew their weakness. Look at uh, weariness. Look what he said in chapter uh, 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Beautiful picture and promise of God. And that's for God's people. That's for God's elect. And in chapter 41, God calls other nations now to account. And he'll bring 
comfort to his people as well again. And then he will expose the futility of trusting in idols. So with that being said, I have this outline um, if you want to follow along. So number one, we will see the supremacy of the great I am. Second, we'll see the sufficiency of the Holy One. And finally, we'll see the surety of the Lord. I, I use the great I am, the Holy One, and the Lord Three different names for our God because that's what we will see in the scriptures. We'll see the certainty and the particular uh, reality and, and guarantee of his salvation and his redemption. So that's where we're going this morning. So number one, the supremacy of the great I am. Verses one through seven. Hear now the inspired authoritative inerrant word of God. Isaiah chapter 41 verses one through seven is where we'll start. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil. Saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. In chapter 40, Isaiah spoke of God in the third person. And now we see God himself speaking. Listen to me. He says in silence, O coastland. The word coastland means, uh, it could be translated islands or isles, but in a broader sense it means territory. And what the idea is that God is calling all the nations, all the distant lands to keep silent, to come, but to keep silent before him. Why? Because they're coming to God's cosmic courtroom. Let us come near. Look what it says. Let us come near together for judgment. And notice how in chapter 40, verse 31, God's people were told to wait on the Lord and that God will renew their strength. But here, he tells the other nations, the distant nations, that he, told, he tells them to renew their strength. But this time it's because they're going to stand before him and they're going to need it. Renew your strength. Like, if you're going to, to contest with God, you better be prepared. And the judgment in the last line of verse 1 is not necessarily or only condemnation, but has to do with, with a decision. In fact, you have an NIV. It says, let us meet together at the place of judgment. And God is saying God alone is the God of judge, who will judge. His sentence will be pronounced. It is he alone who pronounces judgment. Decision. And the first question that God asks is not what, but Who? And that's important. He begins uh, with the reality of who God is as the supreme being of the universe. Verse 2, who the Lord asks, who stirred up from the east whom victory meets at every step? Now, the word victory, some of you have different translation. The Hebrew word actually means what is correct, what is straight, what is just, what is right. 
The one whom God raises up from the east is summoned by the righteousness and the justice of God to do his work, his service of righteousness. In other words, God has righteously summoned a conqueror, this conqueror from the east, who would defeat nations, overcome kings, and easily and swiftly blow away dust and chaff. We learn from chapter 44 and chapter 45 that this is Cyrus, the king of Persia. History records that Cyrus at some point in history crossed uh, from the east over the Tigris River, entered the Babylon Empire, and marched north and defeated and conquered the city capital of Sardis. Chapter 25 says they came from the north. Here we see they came from the east. So this precision is just amazing. This prophecy more than a century and a half before is absolutely stunning and right. But the important part here really is on the who. Who supremely, sovereignly, who is the one who has supremely and sovereignly called him into action? Look at verse 4. Who called the one from the east? I, the Lord. The first and with the last, I am he. Westminster Confession of Faith says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass, end quote. God is absolutely the first. And when he says the first, he doesn't mean he's the first created being. What he means is that he is the first in the sense that he existed before that which was brought into existence, anything. And with all of history, God knows and God will be in the last. He's still in control. While generations of mankind come and go, he remains matchless, perfect, and without rival. He is the first and he is the last. Look at it this way. He is the bookends of all of human history. He starts and ends and he holds it all together. And as the God of the first and the last, he has authority and supremacy over all that is in between. He directs all the paths of human history. Our lives, listen family, you may need to hear this this morning. Our lives are not given over to some blind fate, fate or to random insignificance or some endless cycle with no resolve, like it's spinning out of control. He directs all human life including you, including me. And sometimes, and I'm one, I'm guilty. I think sometimes we need to be reminded because we forget that God will even raise up wicked leaders. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. For the good of his people and the mission, the progress of the gospel. He raised up Pharaoh in Egypt that he might demonstrate his power in Romans 9. He even used wicked Herod, Herod, gutless Pontius Pilate, to accomplish his plan, his determined purposes in the crucifixion of Christ. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. In fact, Proverbs 2, 21 tells us the heart, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. He's the great I am. In fact, if you remember, if you know your Old Testament at all, Exodus chapter 3, God Uh, Moses meets God in a bush. God reveals himself as the I am that I am, the external one. 
That's what the I am means. He is the one who exists independently. He is the self-existent one, the creator, exists, existing apart from anything or anyone and any help from anyone. He is the one who needs no help, and he's the one who accomplishes all that he sets out. He is the I am, unchangeable, self-existent. He doesn't change. He doesn't grow. He does and plans and fulfills everything. And the prophet wants in verse 4, to give an answer to the question. Who stirred up the one from the east? Who gave up the nations? Who pursues them? Passes on safely? Who has performed this and done this? Ultimately, it is the eternal God. The one who called forth from all the generations. The one who raised up Cyrus from the east for his purposes. His righteous purposes to be accomplished. Now, I'm just going to take a short money trail. I think it's important. Jesus Christ in the scripture, in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 22, calls himself the first and the last that we see right here, verse 4. He calls himself the first and the last. In fact, in John chapter 8, you know the story, Jesus told religious leaders, truly, truly, or absolute certain, believe this, I'm saying to you, before Abraham was, I am. First and the last, I am. A clear claim of his deity. But for Abraham was, Abraham was because Abraham had a beginning. He says, in contrast to that, I am without beginning. Commentator Homer Kent says, by using Jesus, by using the timeless I am rather than I was, Jesus conveyed not only the idea of existence prior to Abraham, but timelessness, the very nature of God himself, end quote. His claim is to have an eternal pre-existing, making himself equal with God. And, and the Jewish people understood that. They know that that's blasphemy if it's not true. Unfortunately for them, it was true, and it is true. In fact, it says in John eight fifty nine, they picked up stones to stone him. That's, that's the penalty for blasphemy. They understood. So there can't be two first and lasts. There can't be two great I am's who live and exist independently, creating all things, self-existent one. Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is God in the flesh. Don't let your Mormon friends, your Jehovah Witness friends, and other cults tell you anything differently. He claimed to be the first and the last and the great I am. He is the eternal God, made flesh, dwelt among us. Okay, short trail. Verses 5 through 7. Isaiah now describes the reactions of this summons to these nations. They run in fear, and look what they do. They cling to idols. G.K. Chesterton, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. I know there's a country song, I was looking it up. Remember that song? If you don't stand for anything, you'll fall for anything, whatever it is. When we are afraid, when, 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 when fear grips our hearts... Many times we just lose our, our, our standing, we lose our sense of God, and we begin to cling, and we begin to construct our own meaning, our own myths, our own, our own realities. We, 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 we kind of just start drifting. And in ancient days, Lewis says in verse 7, what they began to do, they began to make their own gods. And I think Isaiah is pouring on the irony here. It took a lot of work. 
to make a good God, he says. It took skilled workers, verse 7. The craftsmen, the goldsmith, they smooth it with a hammer. They, they bang it with an anvil. It took organization, teamwork. It is ready for the soldering that they, that they did. And if you don't nail your God just right, look what it says at the end of verse 7. Your God might not be able to stand up, right? They strengthen it with nails so that it cannot move. You don't want your God moving around. You know, we talk a lot about idolatry. Again, we're doing it almost it seems like every week, but the Bible talks about it as we do expository preaching. So I try to mix it up for y'all. So I'm going to give you a different definition today. I use Tim Keller and, and uh, C.J. Mahaney, but now I'm going to use John Piper. That's right. I know it's hard for you to believe. This is what John Piper says. What is an idol? It is the thing loved or the person loved more than God. Is a thing loved or a person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. It could be a girlfriend. It could be grades. It could be the approval of other people. It could be success in business, sexual stimulation, hobby, musical groups, or sport teams, or your immaculate yard, end quote. I relate to that when I first got my first helm. But anyway, now I don't care. They could blacktop it. But anyway... Our hearts are idol factories, Calvin says, and that we are continually tempted to make temporal things into ultimate things, and we need to guard against idolatry. One last quote, Heidelberg Catechism. Idolatry is having or inventing something which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. So every creature, every culture, every fallen culture, every fallen creature creature has issues with idolatry, you and I alike. And we have to be acutely aware of what the, what the different cultures, the different people groups, and where we find ourselves, we have to be careful on what the world is calling us to worship in place of the one true God. Neither money, power, fame deserve supremacy in our lives. For none, of these, none of those things other than God is transcendent, superior, supreme, for no one is the great I am. The supremacy. Now look at the sufficiency. Verses 8 through 20. Let me read again for you the word of God. Verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, verse 14, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, having teeth. You have threshed the mountains and crushed them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, and in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. For when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and the tongue is parched with thirst, 
I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and the fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness pool of water and dry land spring of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, acacia, acacia the, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the deserts the cypress, the plain, the pine together, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Man, what a shift. What a shift from the fearful people of Babylon, terrified by what the Lord is going to do to the people of God, the people of the Lord who told, listen, I'm with you. My presence is with you. I will be enough. I'm all sufficient for you. And you can just see that in the word but at the beginning. It just draws this sharp contrast of the, of the one nation or the nations who are called and they're running to their helpless, prompt up, uh, 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 propped up idols and the sovereign, supreme, sufficient Lord of the universe who upholds his hand, upholds his people by his right hand. God is saying, look, in the midst of your exile, in your discipline. This is what I will do. This is how I will supply all that you need. I will be your God. I will be your strength. In fact, if you put your eyes down in verse 20, he's the one who created it. He's the one that said the Lord has done this. And now he's saying, but this is what I will supply for you. Notice in verse 8 and 9, though, we're introduced again to the notion of the servant. We're going to look at that in very detail next week. It's part of this section, 40 through 55, the servant of the Lord. Remember, we said the king is the section 1 through 39. That's, that's a prominent theme. It's the king. Now it's the servant of the Lord. And here the exiled people of God are called the servants or the slaves of the Lord. It's a term of affection and encouragement. It's in connection, as you can see, with the vocabulary of election. Right? My servant, who I have chosen. God has already you know, has already taken the offspring of Abraham, the Israelites, from the ends of the earth and by his elective choice brings them to Canaan. And he says, listen, I'm going to do the same thing for you. Your exile is not going to change my relationship with you. I'm not forsaking you because I've disciplined you. Some of you may need to hear that. I am not going to forsake you because I've disciplined you. The Bible tells it in Hebrews 12 that we are disciplined because God loves us. He loves those he disciplines. It's not a term, the servant of disdain. Paul calls himself a bondservant of Christ. A servant of the Lord is one whom God calls and chooses to perform a task. So Jacob and Israel, the people of God, they were to live in the world as a kingdom priest, a peculiar nation. They are to show forth the glory of God to, to the world as, 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 their, uh, as, as God is, their, uh, is the covenant God that they are, that they are to him. Called him. It's not by their own choice. It's not by their own volition. It is the choice of God. It is sovereign grace. Choice was on God's part. The calling of grace was on God's part. He alone set Israel apart by grace alone. Israel, like Moses and David, has been specifically chosen. And, and, it, and the line goes back to what it says here to Abraham, the prototype of election. He's, he is my friend. He is my beloved. He called him out of the land of Ur. He brought him to the land of uh, a, a promise. He gave him the covenantal promise that you will have a lineage, you'll have land, and you'll have the Lord himself will come from your 
offspring. Here he says, my friend. My friend is rooted and grounded in love. That's what that means. Actually, my friend literally is my beloved. It's God's love for him and his love for God. John 15, John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Therefore, as those particularly chosen to serve God, called of God, offspring of the unique friend of God, the children of God, they are called what? Verse 10 is such a beautiful verse. You want to to memorize the verse? Here's the verse to memorize. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a beautiful picture. Promise of God. Because of the relationship they have with the Lord, they need to fear nothing. And that is both a command and a promise. Israel is commanded not to fear. Jesus taught us and commanded us not to fear. Let me say this gently, but let me say this truthfully. Fear, worry, anxiety can often be the product of sin. Lack of faith, failure to trust God. The reason why I say that, and and I believe the scripture teaches it, well, it's saying right here, it's a command, is because sin needs to be repented of. So if we don't call it what it is, we'll try to skirt around the issues. And maybe there's some underlying things going on in your life. Cool, I get that. But at the end of the day, sin needs to be repented of, turned from. It's not, it's not the power of positive thinking or some mental gymnastics. We are to take courage. We are not to fear because he is their God. He is our God. He is with them. He is with us. He's not just this helpless, unmovable object that's nailed into, the, you know, into some sort of wood. He's the great I am, the self-existent one, full in himself, imminently present, sufficient for all. That they need. He is their God. He is our God. What more do we need? Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Not only will he strengthen them and help them. Not only strengthen and help them, but he will uphold them by his righteous right hand. That that phrase means the power and the might of God. In other words, the right hand that works, the the right hand of God that works the, the, the means of righteousness is powerfully demonstrating God's care, God's provision, God's providential care for them. To Israel, this means blessing. To God's people, this means blessing. Because of the gospel, listen, because of the gospel, if you are covered in the blood of Jesus, you have trusted in Christ, you belong to him, God works out all things together for the good for those who love him. And are called according to his purposes. Verses 11 through 12. God declares that all of Israel's adversaries. Those who are angry with them. Will actually. uh, uh, Or actually making war against them. Will will creep away. Look at it says. In disgrace. Ashamed. They'll be humiliated. They are. Verse 11. Nothing. And shall perish. Verse 12. Shall be as nothing at all. Now look with me, look with me, and if you write in your Bibles, that's cool. Verse 10, it speaks of God upholding them with his what? 
right hand. Look at verse 13. It says that he will hold their right hand. Hmm. I, I read this somewhere this week. It's a picture of a father with a sword in his right hand, protecting, defending his son while holding his right hand, giving him his presence while he is protecting and providing for him. He will not allow the child to be separated from him, and he will not allow the child to be attacked. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of our God. In verses 14 through 16, the focus goes from defense to offense. Not only will God defend his people against those who trouble him, but he will make them a tool to tear down, look what it says, obstacles that prevent his plan to move forward. And you notice verse 14 through 16, the book ends again with the Holy One of Israel. What that means is he is holy, he is separate from all humanity. His character, his attribute, his purity, his glory sets him radically apart from all of creation. He is upright, pure, clean, true, other than everything. He calls Jacob a worm. Notice, it's not a put down. What he means by a worm is, <laughs> you know, when I first read that, I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Hey, you worm, you know. Well, what he's expressing is that Israel, Jacob, Israel's inability to really care and, and, and do anything on their own. Psalm 22 says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised. So in other words, there's not much I could do. But notice with me in verse 14, it is their inadequacy that gives, that, that God gives his transforming promise. So he is the worm, but then in verse 14, he says, I'm the one, though, who's going to help you, declares the Lord. God makes this worm, this threshing sledge. He takes this, this, these people that are unable to care and inability to, to really care for themselves, and he says, look, you're going to be a threshing sledge, not worn out, but sharp. You're going to get the job done, verse 15 and 16. You cut down mountains as if they were a great threshing machine, moving mountains, blowing away like chaff. What's the point? What is God trying to say to his people and say to us this morning? Nothing. Listen, nothing, not even a mountain, will stand in the way of God when he is helping his people. God helps you fulfill his purposes. No mountain will stop him. Do you believe that this morning? He's not, he's not talking about political power. He's talking about the gospel. How the gospel triumphs over you and weaknesses. Look what he says. For God is our what? Redeemer. The Holy One of Israel. Redeemer. That word there in the Hebrew, as we saw it in chapter 35, verse 9, it's used when a person delivers a blood relative from some sort of obligation, whether it's legal, uh, whether it's financial, whether it's a social obligation. A person delivers that blood relative from that obligation, and it's even used for avenging someone's bloodshed. God is the Redeemer. He's the next of king, kin who takes upon himself his people's knees as if they were his own. This covenant, blood covenant God who gave his life to redeem his people. It's the same word used as God redeemed his people from Egypt. He redeemed them from Egypt, he says. I'll redeem you from exile. But ultimately, God's people will be redeemed from the bondage and the penalty of sin. 
He's the Redeemer. The, the gods can't do it. He's Lord of history. He is truly holy other than all creation. He is free to do whatever he wants. He is the Holy One. And what does it say in verse 16 we are to do? Rejoice in the Lord. <laughs> in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. Rejoicing in the Lord. Glory in his marvelous salvation. Relish in his kindness to us. Ascribe to him glory, incalculable worth, and value that he has in and of himself. Verse 17 through 20. We see the final work of the sufficiency of Christ. Isaiah has been using this imagery of deserts and waters. Um, it's a picture that God will provide. Uh, and in fact, in verse 20, it says that not only will he provide, but the world will see that he is the one. He says to the poor and the needy who are desolate, he'll provide uh, 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 water for them. I don't think it's literal. I think he's talking about the powerlessness of the people, the poor and the needy, the, 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 the need of everyone. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, those who are thirsty, I will provide. I think that's what that verse means. So if you, if you want to be kept, if you want to be kept, or if you want to not drink of the goodness of God, the stuff that he provides for us, then go ahead and try to quench your own thirst. Try, try to do it on your own. When, you, when, you're, when your mouth is parched because of doubts, because of emptiness, because of hurts or disappointments, self-sufficiency will not give you anything worthy of drinking. You will be parched. But the Lord cries out, I, I'll answer them. When you cry out, listen, Lord, I, I'm thirsty for you. It was Jesus, remember the woman at the well. <laughs> give me a drink, he says. You're asking me? You didn't bring anything to get water out of? And Jesus says, everyone drinks of this water, this natural water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never, double negative, never ever be thirsty again. The water I give will give, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Then later on in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. God makes it clear. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So here's the question before we move on to our third point. Are you thirsty for God? We know you're thirsty. But are you thirsty for God? Every heart longs for satisfaction. You say, no, 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 not me. No, no, all of us. Things that are missing in our life, we thirst. We long for peace and joy and significance, we thirst. We want a good marriage, harmony within our families, we thirst. We want to, to love and be loved, we thirst. We long for fulfillment at work, that we matter, that, 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 that we, we have something worthwhile to give, we, we're, to be appreciated, we thirst. We thirst for purpose. But the problem is, because we are sinners, people seek, you and I seek, satisfaction for our thirst in all the wrong ways. That's what idolatry is. Thirsting for things other than God is the root of sin, it is, is the issue that we face. Our souls were made for Jesus. Our souls were made to drink from the beauty, the greatness, the goodness, the mercy, and the love of God. And without it, we die spiritually. In verse 20, we see four verbs. Men will see it. They'll see the desert. It's well watered now. They will know it. They will possess the knowledge of it, that God is omnipotent. They will consider. The word consider has to do with reflection, meditation upon the fact that God has done this. 
Lastly, they will understand. They will understand. They will comprehend. They will have success. That's what that word means. They will know that the hand of the Lord, his power has done this, the Holy One of Israel. You know, we get mercy. We get grace. You know, we get our, our thirst satisfied, and God gets the glory. Therefore, embrace his sufficiency this morning, his fullness. Be a witness to the world of his glory and his grace. Nothing shows this world the beauty, the glory, and the incalculable worth of Christ than to be satisfied in who God is and all that God has done in the gospel. My prayer is that we would see that. The sufficiency and supremacy and sovereignty of God. Lastly, the surety of God. We'll wrap it up. This section, this last this last section, 21 through 29, deals with uh, bringing the idols into account. In the first seven verses, God was bringing into account the people who were doing idolatry. Here, he's talking to the idols themselves, that the idols can't do what the sovereign Lord can do. The idols can't do, but God will assure them their future. It's a return to the court case. First it was the people of idolatry, now it's the idols themselves. Verse 21 through 23. He calls the idols into account. You know what? You're gonna, you, want, you, want, you wanna bring them in a courtroom and have them speak for themselves. Set forth your case, verse 21, says the Lord. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us, he's talking to the idols, what is, what is gonna happen? Tell us the former things, what they are. That we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come, idol, <laughs> that we may know that you are God, small g, do good, do harm, that we may dismayed and be terrified. God is, God is saying, listen, come, come, come tell me your story. <laughs> Bring your reasons. Give me your best shot. Give me your best argument, idols. Show me what you got. Do you really know the future? Do you really show us what's going to happen? Don't the gods know these things? Do something. And he even says, do good, do evil, do something. But of course they don't. They're dumb statues that can't speak. Verse 24, behold, you're nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. But then in verse 25, everything changes. He calls them into account, the idols themselves, and in verse 25, everything changes, and the Lord sets the record straight. I'll tell you what's really going to happen. I stir up the one from the north. We talked about that. And he has come from the rising of the sun. And he shall, not maybe, we'll see, well, I'm not really sure, there's surety there. He shall come upon, uh, call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter trends clay. In contrast to the idols who can't tell the future, God knows. He will bring Cyrus, he will conquer Babylon, just as he said, and God will use them and use Cyrus to bring the people back. Verse 26. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I, verse 27, I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, can give an answer. Verdict, trial, Answer, done. God alone. Idols can't do it. 
They're modeled in images of wind and confusion and delusion. Verse 29, to close, behold, they are all delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. The foundation of what God will do and can do is being made known to the idols. And what's most importantly is not only will he care, not only will he uh, uh, be their God, but he will restore them. And most importantly, verse 27, give to Jerusalem good news. Only God, the great I am. Only God, the Holy One of Israel, only the Lord himself can offer, listen, good news. Idols, unfortunately, cannot. And let me end it this way. Let me say it this way. Bear with me two more minutes. Listen, idolatry is not only a pagan problem. Idolatry is not only a human problem. Idolatry is a Christian problem. That is why the Old Testament and the New Testament warns the covenant community against idolatry. From the golden calf worshipped in Exodus 32 to 1 Corinthians 10.14 where the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, free from idolatry. The Apostle John in 1 John 5, little children, brothers and sisters, keep yourself from idols. And that is why we are commanded to confess and repent of idolatry often and receive the truth of the gospel's glad announcement that Christ is our life. Colossians 3. The problem is when we think, when we think we believe and we act on something else that captivates our hearts, promising us to make us happy. We tell ourselves that our joy and that our freedom, our significance and security requires something much more than Christ can offer. And we run to fill ourselves with counterfeit pleasures and an empty salvation. What we need every day is to taste that the Lord is good. Remember the first commandment? You shall have no other God before me. Why is that? Because when that takes place, when we learn to tear down our idols and trust the Lord, Alone, it will keep us from committing sins of the other nine. Remember we said, idols are not only bad things, but they are good things that God has created. They are sometimes the gift that God has given us, but we substitute it for God himself. Ortland writes this, an idol is something other than God that we, uh, we are absolutely need as essential to our peace, self-image, our contentment, our self-control, and our acceptability, end quote. So, how do we keep this in mind? How do we keep Idols from controlling us. You know what I'm going to say. Beholding, relishing in, and drinking in the gospel. The supremacy, the sufficiency, and the surety of the gospel. Now listen carefully. Ben, you can come up. Now listen carefully. I've got one more minute. Listen carefully. The heart, the human heart, longs to love. The human heart not only longs to love, it longs to pour out affection For something or someone, we were created worshipers. Not just created to worship, as worshipers. And in order to tear down the idle factories of our hearts, we must replace the thing we love and lust after with something greater, something of greater love in its place, substituting another desire. The most effective way of, of, of turning from a great love Turning from a great desire is not removing the object of idolatry, but by replacing it with something greater, a greater love, a greater object, something more appealing. 
Thomas Chalmers said this, the only way to dispose of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Listen, it is the gospel. But God reveals himself as an object of complete satisfaction and absolute confidence for sinners. To see God's glory in the face of Christ, to hear his voice, his beseeching voice, full pardon, graciously accepted, wonderfully loved, being released from the bondage of sin, adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is then that our hearts can have one single master, one great and prominent affection that will deliver us from the tyranny of its former desires. It is Christ. It is the gospel. And when you look into the eyes of the one who died for you, who was truly innocent, was crucified for you, poured out his blood for you, for your sin, hung on a tree, Freely and willingly so that you can become a child of God. Someone who dies in your place and took the wrath you deserve. When you see that, I mean really see and experience the beauty and the glory and the worth and the love and the mercy and the confidence of the gospel. That will keep your heart free from idols. Let us pray. Father, each and every one of us have our issues with idolatry, including me. So, Lord, we pray that your grace is sufficient. That you are all-powerful, all-knowing, supreme over all the universe. You will call everything and everyone into account. But we, all, we also know that you are sufficient for sinners. That you provide not only forgiveness, but you provide yourself to us to strengthen the weary. You will be with us. You will help us. You will strengthen us because of Christ. And Lord, we pray, Father, that we will continually repent and drink in the truths of the gospel. And that, Father, we will go out into this world to demonstrate the gospel with good deeds and love and declare it with the truth. That Christ alone is our salvation. He is all sufficient for all that we need. And what we need mostly is you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.